Welcome to Rockstar Violinist, the podcast from Electric Violin Shop that brings you the most radical violinists on the planet. I'm your host, Matt Bell. We've interviewed some true pioneers so far, Mark Wood, Ned Steinberger, Martha Mook, and others, players who've been on the cutting edge of the evolution of violin. Today's guest is one of those pioneers. Scott Laird is not necessarily a household name among rock violinists, but he should be. You're listening to a band called Believer right now. Believer was one of the first thrash metal bands to incorporate strings more than 10 years before Symphony and Metallica. This tune is called Trilogy of Knowledge Movement 1, The Lie. Fortunately for me, Scott lives right down the road from me in Durham, North Carolina. I was lucky enough to be invited into his really impressive home studio for this interview. We actually cover a lot of ground here, so I'll let Scott tell his own story. This episode is brought to you by Electric Violin Shop, the world leader in electric bowed strings. Not only is Electric Violin Shop the place to go for instruments and gear, they are one of the leading online content producers for amplified string players. Check out their Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube pages, as well as their website, electricviolinshop.com, for tons of info about instruments, gear, gigging, writing, recording, and all the latest technology and news. Now, on to our interview with Scott Laird, rock star violinist. You know, if we think back to the Believer days, uh, it, it sort of was an interesting progression because the the first record with Believer, really all I did was a, an introduction to the title track, Extraction from Mortality, and for that for that introduction, I had never been in a studio before, I had never done a multi-track recording before, and everything in that part of the writing process was... Um, uh, it was uh, hypothetical. I'd never, I'd never done it, and this was in 1988, and and so that was kind of an adventure, but sort of a short thing. But then for the second Believer record on um, Sanity Obscure, the title, the title of the song was going to be DACRA, Day of Wrath, and our idea for that um, tune was to do something that was Requiem like. And again, you need to remember, this was in uh, the 80s. I guess that was probably 89 or so. And this was before Metallica did the orchestral album. It right. was before um, any, of the, any of the heavy bands were adding orchestral stuff. So what we were doing was really unique. It was something that caught the ear of the, um, of the metal um, community for sure. And it made Believer very different. So... I'm thinking we should do DACRA, Day of Wrath, from the second Believer record, uh, Sanity Obscure. 
um, if we if we dug into the third record, which was Dimensions, and the uh, the the uh, sort of extended operatic orchestral metal piece called uh, uh, Trilogy of Knowledge. It's just so long. I don't know if I could really go into everything in all of the three movements, but I think I think uh, uh, DACRA we can do. Pretty, yeah, pretty yeah. easily. I was talking with uh, Earl Manee and Rachel Barton Pine not that long ago. Yeah. I was actually sitting in a bar with them. Yeah, and um, and they were talking about that 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 record. They were like, when they both heard that, as youngsters, were like, "Yo, I got to tell you, I was I was having a dinner uh, uh, with a big group of Daddario artists um, a couple of years ago, and I was sitting beside Rachel, and I was sitting across the table from Earl, and. You know, uh, my my visual says school music teacher, pretty much. And, uh, you know, we were just having a great conversation, but they had no idea. And I uh, and they were talking about metal, and I knew they were into metal. And so I just said to both of them, you know, have you ever heard of this band Believer? And Earl practically jumps over the table, and he's like, yeah, man. He said, my, my, uh, my manager keeps handing me Believer records and going, you need to sound more like this guy. You need to sound more like this guy. And I was like, well, I'm the violinist in Believer. And Rachel looked over at me and she was like, no way. And of course, for me, I was like, Rachel Barton Pine knows who I am. <laughs> that is crazy. And uh, again, all the Believer stuff for me, if, 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 we're, if we really go back to it, it's a long time ago. And it's a sort of a different part of my life. Now, I'm still working with Believer even to this day, but those days were, they were really wild because, um, I had just started teaching. Um, I was, uh, 22, 23 years old and I was walking through the hallway of Palmyra high school. And, uh, this guy who had dreads came up to me and he said, Hey dude. And I turned around and I said, Hey what? And he said, do you need a guitar in the orchestra? And um, I said, you know, I don't really need a guitar in the orchestra, but I'll teach you how to play the cello. I could really use another cello player. I didn't have any. I don't, I, th I don't think. And he said, okay, count me in. I'll do it. And that summer, Kurt Bachman, who is the brains behind Believer, the guy that, that sort of started it all along with Joey Dobb, the drummer, Kurt came to cello lessons at the elementary school and took cello lessons with a bunch of third graders to learn how to play cello, to play cello in the high school orchestra when he was a senior. So Kurt and I became friends. I was his teacher, he was my student, and I just thought it was so cool that he was willing to learn this stuff about music, and he of course knew a lot about guitar, so it was all about transferring that knowledge. And he in many ways, my first, my, that would have been my second year of teaching, in many ways he was the anchor that made orchestra cool for this young teacher to then recruit more people. And somewhere around, I don't know, Thanksgiving or Christmas of his senior year, his band got signed by REX Records, and I was really excited for them, and, and obviously we were talking about the music, and I didn't really even understand what thrash was at that time. I mean, I'm, I'm a product of, my first records were Boston's first record, Foreigner, Mention Kansas, um, and I'm a huge Sticks guy. I grew up listening oh, yeah. to Sticks, loving Sticks. And so... I hadn't really tuned into Metallica at that point, and and so when he said, "Yeah, well, we're playing thrash music," and I was sort of trying to get my mind wrapped around what it was all about, and it took me a little while to really understand it, uh, more than a little while, just to sort of, and it was still underground music at that point, mostly college radio, and uh, but Kurt and Joey really taught me all about it, 
And they came to me and they said, hey, we've got this title track to the record. It's called Extraction from Mortality. And we'd really like you to play like a, a dark orchestral introduction to for that tune. So I'd really never written anything before. And I sat down and I started putting some ideas together. And my best reference at that point was Kansas. I mean, I was going, okay, what would, what would Kansas sound like? Um, at that point, I didn't, I had never touched an electric violin. Okay. And so we started putting things together. I think I can remember Kurt coming over to my apartment and um, we sort of put together a chord progression. And then I put together this sort of uh, contrapuntal, two violin sort of sounding thing. We added a bass line. And I remember with that particular one, even before we get to the, to the second record, I can remember going into the studios, I believe it was Morningstar Studios in Philadelphia. I'd never been in a studio before. And um, we, we uh, recorded the bass line first just to get a good foundational sound. And then I started overdubbing the violin parts and the viola parts. And of course I was in headphones and I could see the guys in the control room. And as I would add one layer over another, I could see the guys in the control room, like giving each other five, like hugging each other, like this is going to be so epic. And I really didn't even, during the recording process, I didn't have a sense of what was really happening. And I didn't have a sense of how Believer was going to be unique, partially because we were adding strings to what was going on. Um, and they had to sort of bring me into that a little bit. But once I started feeling that wave and once I started getting, you know, uh, you know, kids at various schools would come up and ask for my autograph. And then I was starting and, and um, stuff like that. And I, I started realizing, wow, this is bigger than me and um, articles and magazines, stuff like that. So by the time we did the second record, Sanity Obscure, I had a sense of, number one, how much I loved doing this. I also knew that the introduction we wrote for the Extraction record was slow, and I was now listening to thrash music and right. going, I gotta get my hands on some fast stuff. Right. And at the same time, my older sister was making a name for herself, in, particularly in Pennsylvania, around the Pittsburgh area, as a coloratura soprano. So as Kurt and I started talking about what we wanted to do on the second record, um, I think I had just played a requiem at a local university in the Hershey, Pennsylvania area, and whether it, I, I don't remember what the requiem was, but I know I liked going and doing gigs as a violinist playing requiem. So uh, I said, "Well, why don't we do something that's kind of dark?" I knew that the thrash thing needed to be kind of dark and have a have that kind of a feel to it. I said, "But why don't we bring my sister into it and have her sing on it?" and uh, Kurt liked that idea, and we came up with the idea for uh, D.A. Zire to do a, a slow sort of um, an introduction that had uh, that didn't have really tempo associated with it. That just would be sort of almost like a cadenza. Okay. Uh, so we wrote this slow cadenza as an opening that toggled between an orchestral sound and the soprano singing the traditional lyrics to the D.A. Zire movement and went through two or three permutations there. And I remember one of my sisters, uh, by the way, my sister is Julianne Laird. And um, I remember one of her um, uh, things was she had a high D above the staff and that was something special. Ooh. And so we knew we were gonna build 
to the high D to end the, the cadenza at the beginning. So we did that. And then from there, um, we wanted to do two faster sections. And um, we wanted to bring the guitars into it. And I knew as a violinist that I wanted to be part of sort of some, like something we were talking about earlier. I wanted to play like a guitar. Sure. I wanted to be in the guitar thing, but I also wanted to play some leads. So for me, it was like, okay, this was an opportunity to be creative. And, and honestly, all of that, as we, as we were writing that music and recording that music, um, that was sort of my introduction to the, the amazing opportunities that lie on blank tape, you yeah. know, and this was before digital technology really had taken off. These were recorded on analog. It was all on two inch tape. All on two inch tape. And, um, but I knew, man, if I have access to blank tape and multi-track capabilities, I, I, I mean, I can do anything. So Scott has given us a ton of backstory on this really important tune in the history of metal. Here is D.A.C.R.A. from the Sanity Obscure album in its entirety. Enjoy.
Interestingly, shortly after that, ADAT technology came out, and actually Believer's third record, Dimensions, was one of the first um, commercially produced records that was done on three synced-up ADAT tapes. It was, um, we, by that time, we were on Roadrunner Records and sort of cross-labeled with REX, the independent label in Nashville, and Roadrunner in New York, and Roadrunner... I think financed the third record. I wasn't too much into the business part of things, but I know that like uh, we we had the opportunity to get ADATs and to record our third record in our home studio at that point, and that was kind of really new at that time. That was like a quantum leap past two inch tape, right? Absolutely, nothing compared to what we've got now on hard drive recording. But at the time, it was like. Oh my goodness, can you believe what we can get away with? Yeah, and, and actually for me as a teacher, what was really crazy, I was, I was doing all this stuff in the studio, and again, I was, um, by the time Sanity Obscure came out, I mean, Believer was being featured in um, Metal Maniacs magazine, it was being featured in Metallica magazine, and people started knowing who I was. And um, I can remember being at school, I, I, I took a new job in the Washington, D.C. area at Eleanor Roosevelt High School. And I can remember, like, I'd be teaching, conducting the orchestra, and these, like, like guys with long hair would be peeking in the door, and I'd say, you know, can I help you? And they're like, uh, are you the guy on Believer's Records? And I'm like, yeah, definitely. And they're like, God, can we get your autograph? And my orchestra students would be, like, rolling their eyes going... <laughs> This guy signs our bathroom pass. Do you yeah, understand right. this? This guy is just our orchestra teacher, and you want to. But it was it was kind of a neat dichotomy, and it 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 made it made me as a teacher. It gave me a sort of a special and unique calling card as a teacher. Now talking about Day of Wrath, you know, even the recording for that it was done with all acoustic violins. But the story of electric violins and me is really kind of a neat story that I think uh, uh, folks will get a kick out of hearing. Because um, I, uh, years earlier, I had become friends with Mike Marshall, a famous mandolin player. And uh, Mike, some of you will know that Mike and Daryl Anger, the founder of Turtle Island String Quartet, are really close friends. And they had played with, the, with David Grisman for many years together, and they still record together, lots of records together. So um, I had met Mike in the late 80s um, through um, a performance series at my first high school I taught at, which was called the Authors and Artists Series at Palmyra high school in Pomar, Pennsylvania. And uh, Mike and I became close friends, and they had actually done some, his group, the Modern Mandolin Quartet, did some residencies with me at my school, and we had just become close. So I was turning Mike on to some of this metal music that I was recording, just sort of saying, hey, check out what I'm doing. This is really fun, and it's really interesting, and Mike was interested in it. And um, he had been in the D.C. area for a performance, and we had dinner or something, and I was telling him about it. And he said, hey, Scott, look, he said, you know, I live in Oakland and there's this company, Zeta, that makes these electric violins. And he said, I actually have one sitting in a closet. He said, it's not really right for me. Let me send it out to you. And uh, I came home from work one day and there was a box with a Zeta, what we came to know as the Zeta Stratos Mm -hmm. violin. It was just the Zeta electric violin at that time. And... uh, or maybe it was the Stratos. It had the Stratos bridge on it. So I just remember I pulled it out and I started playing it. And the moment that I played that instrument, I went, I knew that I had just found my voice. I knew, and, and Mike sent it to me specifically for my recording work with Believer. But I knew this was much bigger than this because it, I had found something that I knew 
would be right for me probably for 15 years since I was a kid. And I just had never had my hands on it. So what year was this? That would have been um, probably 92. Okay. Uh, either 91 or 92. I was living in the Washington, D.C. area, Prince George's County of D.C. And I remember I got that Stratos and I used it then for the third record for uh, Dimensions. Uh, for um, mostly for leads. I don't recall that I did the orchestral stuff with it. So it, that record sort of was a combination of acoustic violins uh, recorded with a ribbon microphone, really nice pristine sound, and um, and the Zeta Stratos. And, um, and I started fooling around with effects processing at that point and finding, you know, what, oh, this is, this is how this is going to work for me. And um, actually... I really didn't do any improvising until about that time, until I got the electric violin. Um, my training is, you know, uh, what I always call modified Suzuki. I started when I was six years old and um, came up through traditional high school programs. My degrees are a bachelor's of music education with a violin concentration and then a master's of violin performance um, that were all built around you know, traditional classical music. Right. And I just knew that I wanted to be a more expressive musician. And the Believer music was like the beginning of the creative side of, of being a musician. And then as that kind of wound uh, through, um, then I started playing around with improvising in the early 90s and figuring it out on my own, really, is right. what happened. quick clip from the next movement and the trilogy we started in the intro. This is movement two, the truth. This whole trilogy is on Believer's Dimensions album. It's fantastic and it's on iTunes. Go get it today. that earlier where it's pre-internet you don't have the tie to all these other players and people and you don't have access to YouTube and 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 I think a lot of us I was a few years behind you I think I got my first electric in like 97 and and it was like trying to figure this thing out and not realizing that Martha Mook is parallel path that, that Mark Wood is parallel path that Daryl Anger and Tracy Silverman all these guys are all doing this stuff in different places but I'm in Beaumont, Texas, and you're in what Philadelphia or D.C., and it's like, I didn't know those other people were out there. So there's a couple of interesting things that sort of followed right after that. So um, after Believer's third record, um, the band didn't really break up, but we, we went on a hiatus. And uh, Kurt from the band uh, went to school. He, he had pushed off school for about five years, and he went to school, and he's a, a brilliant cancer researcher now, and 
Um, and everybody sort of went their own ways for a while, and there was over a decade till the next Believer record came out. So it was time to do something else. And um, so Joey Dobb, the drummer from Believer, and uh, our engineer named Ted Hermanson, who was a really wonderful bass player, and I put together a little trio. And the trio was designed to be sort of in the vein of Jean-Luc Ponty. So it was drums, bass, and electric violin. Now, you have to remember, I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I, I was a really good classical player. I was not an improviser and uh, certainly not a jazz player. And I still, to this day, I don't call myself a jazz player. I'm, I'm, an, uh, I'm a functional improviser, but I'm not a jazzer. Right. And um, uh, so we got together to see if we could make this trio work. And um, I remember that Ted had a lexicon jam man. Mm. And I... And he was doing looping stuff with his bass. And I was asking him about it, and he said, well, you know, it's kind of expensive. He said, the Jam Man's like about $400, but if you spend more money on the chips to get more memory, you could get up to 30 seconds of looping uh, capability. How much? A thousand bucks. I did it. I did, like, I, I was a teacher, and I, right. I had a little bit of money. I had no kids, so I had some liquid income. I went out like that day and I ordered a Lexicon Jam Man. Because one of the things about me is I'm a multi-instrumentalist. I'm, I play guitar, I play bass, I play violin. And so I started thinking, boy, this, this looping thing could be really cool. Mm-hmm. So I got a Jam Man and I started paying attention to music that had basically one chord progression. Right. And, um, and I, I wish I could tell you the names, but we, we put together several Jean-Luc Ponty-ish uh, songs that came from like maybe even just parts of Jean-Luc Ponty music. And I wrote a couple of things. In fact, there's a tune on my, um, on my first solo record, uh, the title track, it's called Freeway, um, that is built around, I went out and I bought a harmonizer, uh, a Digitech DHP 55 maybe or 30 DHP 33 was the model number that was a three voice harmonizer mm-hmm. diatonic harmonizer and um, so I'd write chord progressions with the harmonizer loop them and then play leads over them and ironically that's how I learned to improvise okay. like I would create my own chord progressions and then start really noodling around and what really comes out are pentatonic sounding things but that was my introduction um so, so we had this little trio and um, just did a couple of gigs, not very much, but it was enough to get me hooked on, okay, I've got I've to write more, I've got to play more. And um, as looping technology over the years has become more sophisticated, I've sort of rolled with it. So um, at one point I had several jam mans. Um, I, I, I have a uh, Oberheim Echoplex out there that I used for a while. And I've gone through several yeah, like an RC300 sitting right here. The RC300 is my primary looping tool now because I love the phrases. And so the way I write now is I typically use guitar and I'll write, um, my tunes will have a uh, chorus and verse on guitar or a chorus verse bridge, depending on the tune. Right. And I'll lay down the guitar um, foundation. Sometimes I lay a bass down live with that as well. And then I can play a live show with chorus verse bridge and uh, solo on my violin. And that's kind of the way that evolution has worked for me to become um, uh, a, um, a viable solo act as an electric violinist. Right.
So, and that actually years ago, I used to, I used to have a setup. I've sort of pared it down in recent years, but I used to do violin, bass, drum machine. I would use the Zeta Symphony, mm -hmm. so I'd have MIDI sounds, and then I'd have the analog sounds, and I'd have you know four or five instruments sitting around me in a pod and play shows at bars or yeah. you know coffee shops or you know just just concert kind of shows at various venues that would hire me to do that. It takes stuff. two hours to load in a setup for a one hour show. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> Done it many, 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 many times. It's almost like I have to. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it seems like it might have happened. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've usually played with bands, so I, I haven't really done a lot of the live looping stuff, but it's, you can definitely figure out like how much, like I'm sitting here thinking about how much work there is to set all this up. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, it's so funny for me, you mentioned about playing with bands. So, it's funny how you go through a progression. So like in the, in the late eighties and early nineties, I was doing all the believer stuff. And then this little trio I was talking about, and I was driving like two hours from DC back up to Hershey to rehearse with those guys. And the road was just killing me. I, I'd be teaching during the day. I'd drive two hours, do a rehearsal, maybe sleep overnight and get up way early the next morning and drive back. And so doing that was kind of killing me. And I wasn't a good enough improviser to get with the local jazz guys and it was really just in the DC area. It was hard to find people that wanted to to jam in a way that would allow me to learn, and in a way that was just kind of comfortable and had my sensibilities. I think in in those years, so this would be like late '90s. My musical sensibilities were taking me more like in on a path to like um, you know sort of folky acoustic, sort of smooth jazz stuff. So like I'd want to. I want to improvise over James Taylor changes right. or over Eagles changes or write my own changes and do that. And, um, and I just didn't have that guy to work with that had that patience, but my looper had the patience cause I could play the stuff on my guitar sure. and then figure it out. What's interesting about that is I did that for a lot of years. And by the early two thousands, I was done not having somebody to communicate with as a musician. And just very fortunately, um, I met a guy at my work at the North Carolina School of Science and Math named Willie Painter, who around the Durham area, Willie is really one of the, uh, one of the best no known gigging guitarists in Durham. He has a band called the Willie Painter Band, and they, they're, a, they're sort of a must-have cover band in the area. And um, Willie and I got together, I think, I think we were asked to play, or I was asked to play for a... Um, a Kiwanis Club dinner, and I was going to do a little 10-minute talk about orchestra at the School of Science and Math, and then Willie and I, and then they asked me to play a little bit, and I needed an accompanist, so I said to Willie, let's do something, you play guitar and I'll play violin, and we got together and we played a little bit, and we ended up then playing gigs at all kinds of venues around Durham for the next probably five to eight years, um, kind of extraordinarily regularly. So we were regulars at the Blue Nut Grill here in Durham okay, for yeah. quite a while and, um, and lots of other restaurants and that kind of thing. And uh, I really owe Willie a lot because at that point I really, I needed uh, another influence. Like just playing the looping stuff got stale for me after a while. Mm -hmm. And Willie sort of turned me on to all of the art that's involved in sharing the conversation right. with another musician uh, as an improviser and the, the art of 
accompanying versus playing lead versus playing off melody, all of the things that are so important to us that are doing that kind of work. A few years after that, um, uh, some other guys that I work with at my school, Adam Sampieri, who's our theater instructor at the school, and he, he was a really well-known uh, singer-songwriter in the Durham area when he was in college at Duke. And he got this job as the theater instructor at our school, and we, um, uh, my colleague, Philip Riggs, who's the band director at the school, plays really nice cajon. And the three of us started playing together as Broad Street Collective. And, um, and the three of us still play a lot of gigs together um, to this day. And, and that sort of has been an extension of my work with Willie. So it's all about, you know, new people and relationships and, and learning what you can from the people you're around. And then all of that stuff I've always brought back to my looping. And, you know, I've gigs this fall doing looping stuff at local venues and, and I'm really looking forward to it. So, yeah, so it's, it's a journey that never stops. in his solo album called Freeway a few minutes ago. Here's a bit of the title track that he referenced. violin shop not that long ago to talk to us in there and, and so what do you see in the difference between today's students that have access to all this technology I mean in my iPhone I've got a hundred times more studio than the Beatles ever had yeah so what do you see as a difference between today's kids and like when we were coming up where you know technology was a two-inch tape yeah I think I think uh, you know it's an interesting thing I've so Back, um, beginning in the mid-90s, I started giving educational clinics for Zeta Music Systems. And um, from about maybe 96 to about 2002, I was at many, many, many music educators conferences teaching music teachers about electric string technology. And in those days, uh, everyone was particularly interested in the MIDI technology. Mm -hmm. And it was hard. It, was, it, it took time and it took energy to set up your symphony to work with your with your way of playing and your to, to really make it do what we wanted it to do took a lot of time uh, um, not in front of students certainly like just by yourself and um, uh, uh, so a lot of what I was teaching teachers back in those days was that electric technology was um, a way to enrich your bowed string playing experience. And I used to say that, you know, if your violin is 
the primary colors on your palette, then the electric violin is the neon colors that add to that palette. And you can do so much more with effects processing and with MIDI and all of these things. I think the, as, we, as we move into like current technology and what's going on now, I really think there's been almost like a bell curve. Um, through the late 90s into early 2000s, I think I and others like me would, wanted to have all of the technology at once and lots of people got lost in all of that technology. I'd play and people would come up, other violinists would come up and say, I want that exact same setup. I want MIDI, I want looping, I want effects processing, and you just integrate those so seamlessly, I, I can do that too. And I'd say, well, you're probably better off adding one thing at a time and learning that one thing really, really well. It's just like teaching. If I'm gonna teach uh, upper positions, shifting and vibrato and reading upper positions, I'm not going to teach them all on the same day. I'm going to right. do them one thing at a time, limit the variables. And I say that to people all the time with technologies. And I think as we've come to where we are today, I honestly think that students today are better at doing that because I think they're not so amazed by simply just the technology of plugging in and having a reverb. Like that used to just blow people away. Right. And now plugging in a violin for any of my students or students anywhere is not, that's not earth shattering. They've seen Lindsey Sterling. Right. They've, they've, they've heard the Dave Matthews band, or maybe most of them now are, are too young to have heard them. Right. <laughs> you know, that's depressing. That, yeah, it's really depressing. <laughs> uh, but they know, they get it. They know what the capabilities are and they know that we can amplify and effects processing isn't anything new. Right. And I think because it's not new, they're willing to be a little bit more thoughtful about what it is that they do. Um, the other thing I think, and we talked about this a little bit before we started rolling tape, was that, that YouTube has changed everything. Because we can go there and learn what we need to know about one specific thing pretty easily, you know. Um, and I just see that with my own children, you know, that they... Uh, my son, Matt, who has become quite an electric violinist and he's working at becoming an improviser and, and he, uh, you know, plays bass and he plays violin and a lot of, and he plays guitar. And a lot of his early instruction was, sure, I drove a little bit of that at home, but then he'd go right out to YouTube and, and get other training on it. And, and, and I think kids are more able and they're able because of the technology, but they're also hardwired in their brain to think that way. Oh, I, I need to, I want to know how to get this effect. Let's go figure out what that effect is. And even the multi-track technology, which I like to introduce to my students. And if I pull up audacity and say, well, let's, let's play a string quartet individually you right. know, and play all the parts. Uh, most kids aren't blown away by that technology. And so they get over that sort of, kind of amazement much quicker and get down to work and down to the process of sounding good and what's my technique and you know why does why does why do I hear more stuff when I play the electric violin than I did with my acoustic violin and sure so so they're just they're just ready for it they're more um there's a great book called grown up digital that really kind of makes the point that that our generation today have grown up digital they've grown up in a technology environment that it doesn't blow them away the same way it did probably you and me when we first got our hands on for an sure. electric violin or, I mean, just the digital delay for me was completely mind blowing that I right. could 
1992 that I could improvise a canon in D minor and it sounded so good. And like, I could just get lost. And I love to tell the story. I'll, I'll, I'll drop a few shout outs to people yeah, that were part of this educator, electric violinist, electric violinist, educator life that I lived. But I can remember taking my electric violin to school at, uh, at Eleanor Roosevelt high school in DC. And there was a, a kid in my orchestra named Shuvo Sir who took it in a practice room and put a digital delay on and literally lost the whole day. I mean, I, I forgot he was in there. <laughs> and I came back like five hours later. Like, Here's all poker. <laughs> yeah. And he ended up playing in, he still plays to this day in metal bands and uh, is known around the DC area as an electric violinist, as a metal violinist. And, and um, you know, that day for him was life altering without question. And uh, to watch that happen with students and to know it happened to me and to know it happened to you is it's awesome. Right. And, and, and we were walking that path sort of at the beginning, even on the, on the electric violin side of things, I can't say for sure, but I think I might've been, I, I know I was one of the first teachers in the United States to purchase an electric ensemble of instruments. We did that at Eleanor Roosevelt. I'll show you a picture over here of yeah. them from probably 94, 95. I don't, I don't remember what year, but, um, and we were, playing gigs all over the DC area. I can remember the first time we plugged a group in, in the cap center before it was the FedEx center or what it is now where the, the Washington capitals played hockey. Okay. And we played the, the national anthem for a, um, a big all County convocation ceremony at the beginning of the school year, plugged in direct into the cap center system. Oh yeah. And the kids played the national anthem it was unbelievable. It brought the house down, I'm sure. It was crazy. You just you just couldn't even imagine that. And um, I can remember we took that electric string quartet to the um, Rayburn office building down on Capitol Hill mm -hmm. and played for a big function. And uh, Lauren Mazel, who was with the National Symphony at the time, came. And he was just blown away. And we had such a great conversation. In fact, I was going through some old pictures recently and saw some pictures of... Uh, Mazelle and my students uh, oh, that's cool. having a conversation that night. It was really awesome. So what stuff. instruments would that have been back in the 90s? Those were Zetas. It, okay, it, so it was a Zeta quartet. It was a Zeta quintet because we had a bass too. Okay. So we had two violins, a Zeta viola, and we had all jazz uh, uh, technology. So we had MIDI technology for each one of those instruments. We didn't end up using it a whole lot, right. but we ended up having um, uh, yeah, a quartet plus a bass. And then we'd go out and play these functions. And, and I would have the kids play everything from classical music. I mean, we would play um, Mozart and kind of moderate difficulty string quartet repertoire to more like school orchestra repertoire. There's, there's a composer named Elliot Del Borgo that if there's any teachers listening, they'll, they'll know that name as a, a well-known composer for young orchestras. But a lot of his music is very rhythmic. And in fact, if you electrify it, it actually sounds kind of kind of heavy. It ends up sounding okay. very metal-like. Yeah, you know? awesome. Jugga, jugga, jump, jugga, jugga, jump, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And the kids loved it and then would throw some kind of effects on the, on the violins and, um, it was, it was effective. It really worked. So yeah, that's killer. Yeah, that was fun. So you're also, you're an NS artist now, right? Yes. Uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm an NS artist and have been for quite a while for probably, probably since about 2005 or 2006, something like that. 
And um, my role with NS is to be an ambassador for um, for all things education, and um, have developed just a great relationship with the company over the years. I play their violins exclusively. I have. Um, uh, so you got a CR sitting right here. I got a CR five sitting right there that I play a lot, and then my CR four right now is strung up with Diderio octave strings. Oh yes. And so I've just been. I've actually been doing. Did you do A to C on that? Uh, on the octave strings, no, I go E to G. Okay. Because I can throw an octave pedal on my five string and go with the low C's, and then the the and I left the E to G on that and uh, just the traditional set or the standard set, and so I've actually been recording some stuff this uh, spring and summer for the new Believer record. So okay. what people don't really know is Believer did these three records back in the late '80s, early '90s, and. Um, uh, uh, um, Dimensions, the third record was was really it got a lot of recognition, it was really cool we were nominated for a Dove Award mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, in 93 and that was a whole experience in and of itself to to go to that award ceremony and be part of it and, um, and um, so that got a lot of critical recognition I would say and then we all sort of went our separate ways. I dove into my teaching career. Kurt dove into school. Joey dove into other stuff, family and, and everything. And, and so uh, they came back together. And I can't tell you the exact dates, but I think their next record was released in... It probably was 2007 or 2008. And I really didn't play on that record. Their next two records I didn't play on. But the new one that's sort of in process right now... Uh, I'm part of it, and um, so they just released a single um, not long ago that that um, has a little bit of violin leads at the end of one of the tunes. Uh, you can go to believerband.com and see the new material. It's really cool, uh, or hear the new material. And um, the physical CD is going to be released, I think, the end of this year. And there's um, a couple more tunes that I do big orchestral sounding stuff on. So, it just in recent uh, months, I've been recording a lot of um, overdub stuff to send to them to for final mix down and everything that has you know really big, fat, thick orchestral sounds on it that go all the way from you know the the the, the violin stuff through viola rangy stuff through cello and all the way down to bass, all recorded on. My violins on my NS nice. violins, so um, I'm excited the, about that. The beauty stuff. of 2018 is you can do that at your house here in Durham, right here, and just send stems. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right, and and uh, it's awesome also because you know Kurt and I'll get on the phone and we'll talk about what his vision for the tunes are and what 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 my capabilities are and what we'd like to do with it, and so it really makes for an incredible creative process and very different than you know the first three Believer records we were we were a band in a studio. And would get together to record the record, and 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 this record has been a long-term project. I mean, it's kind of a lot of back and forth, and a lot of opportunity for us to stay connected, just as friends, right. in creating new music, and of course, lots of freedom. We can do, believer can do anything we want right now as as artists, which is really cool. I remember being in in the in the late '90s in a in a studio that you're paying by the hour, yeah. and sometimes your creative process is a little bit limited by budget. Yeah, because it's like you know we're sitting in there. Oh well, why, why don't we try this? And you're hearing TikTok, 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 and yeah. you know. And now since I mean it's really not that hard at all to have fantastic studio equipment in your house. Yeah, there's no more there's no more excuses on that. No, exactly. I, you know, uh, uh, yeah, that's absolutely the 
the way it is. And, and I jumped into that pretty early with ADAT technology. I, I bought um, my first ADAT studio in probably 96 or 97 and just went to school. I mean, I just started learning and I read everything I could about mixing consoles. I read everything I could about digital technology and um, and jumped in and just decided, okay, I can learn how to be an engineer here. Sure. And um, and and did it. And then start. And then I brought that curriculum into my school. And we still to this day have a recording, uh, a digital audio production curriculum at the North Carolina School of Science oh, and Math fantastic. that I created. And uh, that's pretty cool. You know, going back to NS Design and uh, Ned Steinberger and all things NS. What an amazing guy. Well, I got to tell you, he's a great friend, and and he is an amazing guy, brilliant. And um, my story with Ned is really kind of cool. So you might you yeah, might do get tell. He was an earlier episode on here. I actually oh, cool. went up to his house in Maine to interview him. Awesome. So back when I was working for and with Zeta Music Systems in the '90s, um, Zeta asked me to go to Berkeley one summer for what they called at the time the String Fling, and it was sort of an early uh, eclectic styles workshop. And um, there were a series of vendors that were there that had booths. And so Zeta had a booth, and Ned had a booth as well. And um, he was right across from the Zeta booth. And ironically, Ned's early designs had uh, Zeta Jazz Bridges on them. Okay. So we had sort of this kind of kindred spirit, and we started talking because we were just kind of hanging out in the booth when no one was around. And I had actually, during the recording of the Third Believer record, I, uh, I was in the studio, and I needed a bass to play some of the bass lines. And the studio owner, oh, actually Ted Hermanson, the guy that was engineering the project, and he owned the he owned the space we were in, um, had a Steinberger bass, and um, he said, "Hey, uh, try this bass out. You might like it. It's kind of small." And I was like, "Okay." And this was an original Steinberger bass, and I played um, uh, the bass lines in uh, one of the tunes on the tri trilogy of knowledge. Uh, we wrote a. Uh, uh, a 12-tone piece, and I played the bass line on the 12-tone piece with the Steinberger bass, and I absolutely loved it. It had sort of a really pristine digital sound to it, and it kind of felt really good under my fingers. It felt like a violin, sort of, and I was telling Ted how much I loved it, and he was more of a Fender guy, and he said, look, if, if you want it, I'll sell it to you today, and I bought it that day. So, um, so fast forward to this string fling. And Ned's there, and I get to telling him that I have a Steinberger bass, and so we have this connection. And like Ned does, he will have you as an artist try everything he has, because mm -hmm. he wants to know how it feels, how it sounds, how you react to the, to the work he has because done. Because he's not a player. No, but he's a... His academic curiosity is beyond... It's boundless. Yes, it's boundless. And so... Uh, so I was playing these violins and giving him feedback, and we really just kind of hung out and became friends. Well, as anybody who's been involved in electric violins for a long time knows, Zeta Music System sort of went away for a while. Yeah. And uh, that was, I don't know the exact year, but I want to say it was around 04 mm -hmm. or 05. So my relationship with that company dissolved. And, uh, made, and, and actually, my relationship with them might have dissolved a little bit before that. So as, a, as an artist and an educator, I, I had really hitched my train to technology nationally at that point. And people sort of knew me as the electric violin teacher. And, um, and uh, at that point, I was here in Durham, and I was realizing that I didn't want my reputation to be strictly technology. And um, so I decided to sort of put away my electric violin and technology hat for a while. And um, 
all of my speaking engagements and conducting engagements and stuff for about four or five years were more traditional, traditional pedagogue, conductor, and uh, more kind of back to my roots where I grew up. And um, one day I got a call from Ned and he had not forgotten about me. And he called me up and said, hey, we've, we've put together NS Design. I, I think even in those that at the string fling, I don't think they were called NS Design at the time. The shape was the same, but I don't think, I think he was just, he was just himself. Yeah, he had some early Steinberger violins. Yeah. I got to play one of the early ones at his house. Yeah. And, um, and I think Daryl Anger was, was involved in the, in the development of that. That's very possible. I, I, I don't remember that specifically, but just there's a little gap in my knowledge. But Ned called me up and he said, hey, uh, I'd, I'd like you to consider working with us. And, um, and he knew what had gone on with Zeta and there had been time uh, gone. And, and um, just weeks before that phone conversation, I had been down at the electric violin shop playing everything with Blaze. And uh, I, I played everything and I loved the Steinberg, the NS design mm -hmm. violins. And I said to Blaze, literally, I said to him, about the only other company that I would ever really hitch my reputation to is, is NS design. And then, I don't know, I don't think Blaze called it. He might have, though. I don't know. Yeah, but know. it wasn't but a few weeks later till I heard from Ned and um, another one of his guys that was working there. And we decided to meet up at an ASTA conference, the American okay. String Teaching mm -hmm. Association. And I think uh, that year it was in Detroit. And his um, director of sales at the time came and met with me. And um, we sort of realized that we had a, a good vibe together. And uh, we went ahead and, and uh, kind of, created an agreement. And then the next year, Ned came to Albuquerque, New Mexico to hear me speak on electric violin technology and incorporating it into the classroom. That's where it is this year. This coming, year, this coming year, it's going to be there again. It's rolled back around. Yeah. Are you but, going? Oh yeah, I'm speaking. I've got okay, several yeah. sessions that I'll, that I'll be doing there. Um, uh, I'm doing, actually I'm doing a Kodobo session with Jeff Van Fossen. Okay. That's my other company. So my three companies are NS Design, Kodobos, and D'Addario Strings. Okay. And um, all in, in, in kind of different ways. Uh, uh, but um, yeah, so, so Jeff and I are doing a, uh, a session called The Art and the Science of the Bow together. And then I also am doing a session, I've got a little series of sessions that I've been doing with Two other amazing string pedagogues, uh, Jim Palmer from the Atlanta region and um, Dr. Rebecca McLeod from UNC Greensboro and I, the three of us, have started a little series called Sharing Our Secrets. Okay. And then each year we'll get in front of a demonstration orchestra and share our rehearsal secrets related to a specific topic. Okay. Last year's was um, rhythmic uh, rhythmic accuracy. This year's is going to be melodic line and nuance. And okay. so uh, that's my my other session that I'll be giving. And I'll probably be involved. There's also a little town town hall kind of meeting with Martha. With Martha. Yeah, and I'm, I'm pretty I'm in on that too. Yeah. I'll be in on that as well. So so um, yeah, we'll have a strong involvement. And for those that don't know, I'm on the national board of the American String Teachers right now, and I'm the chair of the um, content development committee. Um, so very pleased to be working with ASTA at the national level right now. And, and excited about the work we're doing and, and asked his future in lots and lots of ways. But, um, but anyway, sort of to get back to the story, Ned came to Albuquerque and heard me speak and sort of, and we reconnected and it was very clear that he and I are a good match. I mean, we, we're, we're similar guys in that we want to learn stuff and, and, um, and, uh, and uh, I, I just really enjoy spending time with him 
and I love the products that they make. I think they're fantastic. Here's a tune from Scott's 2004 release called Simple Gifts. This is the title track. While we're listening, I want to share a little bit about our sponsor, Electric Violin Shop. As Scott and I have been sharing, technology moves pretty fast, especially for emerging fields like electric strings. Electric Violin Shop spends a ton of energy to stay on top of all the latest technological developments, from MIDI to magnetic pickups, from new types of strings to new amps and even amp simulators, from impulse responses to synthesizers and more. And we bring a lot of this information to you with our weekly live streams, YouTube videos, and social media posts. Furthermore, EVS is a frequent consultant for new instrument and tech developers and provides constant market feedback for all the manufacturers we work with. New instruments are exciting, but continuous improvement in the instruments we already carry is also important, and we're constantly encouraging and directing innovation, invention, and improvement. Trust EVS with your next purchase of an instrument, amp, or tech product. ElectricViolinShop.com Now, back to Simple Gifts and Scott Laird. So the, the reality of the School of Science and Math, and I told you this a little bit when we came down, is our kids are effectively, they're all science and math majors. And we're just trying to keep them going on orchestra while they're right. there. And um, the orchestra's fantastic. We'd love to have you come to a concert sometime. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we do the repertoire, you know. It's like a, it's more like a college orchestra than a, than a high school orchestra. But that, what I would call enrichment time of electric violins, so I make them available to everybody. And if kids are interested in getting into them, Boom, you're in a band, no problem. You have full access. To right. Or you're in my recording class and you want to record some stuff, full access. Um, but the reality is, is it's, it's just, it's sort of the tipping point for this mm -hmm. school. So my work as an educator with electric instruments is more teaching teachers, you know, sort of sure. showing them. So, so this, I would love to have show up. Um, one of the really cool things that I'm doing this fall is I'm the guest artist with an all-county orchestra in Calvert County, Maryland. Mm. And, of course, I do a lot of guest conducting appearances with all-county and regional and all-state groups. But their request was a little bit different because they called me up and they said, hey, we want you to come guest conduct our group, but we really want you to be a guest artist with our group. So what we want you to do is to not only conduct but play. So when I'm in front of a, um, a like an all-county level group or a group around that level, I will frequently pick up my electric violin and solo with the group. So for instance, for this particular um, event, we're going to do a West African folk tune called Nanyigo that um, is arranged by Tom Sharp, um, Latham Music, that I, it's, 
you know, it sort of sits in a, in a sort of a D minor mode. And so I have done it many times over the years with orchestra where I pick up my instrument and just improvise over top of this thing. And it's really well received. We're doing um, a Burt Ligon arrangement, I think, uh, a jazz arrangement. Um, it's, I'm sorry, it's escaping my mind right now. We're going to do the Fioco Allegro mm-hmm. with string orchestral accompaniment but we're going to do it sort of in the style of Vanessa May with okay. the orchestra, drums, bass, electric violin playing the solo. So I'll be the soloist playing the electric violin part. Um, and the kids will be playing the accompaniment mar- part on their traditional instruments. We're doing uh, an arrangement of a Randy Sabine, uh, a Randy Sabine arrangement called Joshua, which is Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. And it's kind of, uh, a perfect entrance into improvisation for the kids. Okay. And then I'll solo with that as well. So the whole idea for this performance in October is, uh, you know, bringing the electric violin to the, to the orchestral performance stage. And, um, I do that a lot. I've done it a ton over the years and I'm doing some of that same stuff at an all County orchestra in South Carolina the next weekend. So okay. we're doing a bunch of it this fall. Um, and that kind of finds its way into my teaching and um, guest appearances a lot. Um, and I think it's really important because that's a way that these kids that are, that are in the traditional classroom with traditional teachers who may not be comfortable with electric technology can see how effective it can be. And this is really important, not only as an improv- improvising tool, but also just as a technology tool with classical music. So... I really do try to incorporate traditional classical playing into my electric playing as much as I possibly can, particularly when I'm with students. Because going back to that notion of too many variables, what the big downfall I find for teachers is they try to teach improvisation, swing style, and electric technology all in the same day. And you just can't do it. Whereas if you can just stick to, hey, let's just add some technology to uh, uh, Mozart or add some technology to a Bach fugue, now that can be really effective. In fact, one of the very first things I ever did, are you familiar with the composer Vaclav Nelly Bell? Yeah. So Nelly Bell was really popular in the 70s with school orchestras when I was coming up. So I, I think there's a piece called Concerto for Orchestra uh, by Nelly Bell and it has a violin cadenza in the middle of it. So when I very first started using electric violins, this was with that Zeta that Mike Marshall sent me. I would take it along with me to guest conducting appearances, and I'd put it in the concertmaster's hand, and when that little cadenza would come up, they'd pick up the electric and play it. Notes were all written out. It was very playable, but a little bit of delay on it, a little bit of reverb or chorus or flanger or whatever we would do, and that kid was immediately a superstar. Sure. And, and, and And I'm talking about mid nineties now. So nobody else was doing that. That was kind of new at the time. And I'm really proud of that work. I think, I think, I think it was the beginning of this incredible wave of, uh, popularity and opportunity for string players. Um, I definitely saw it at the time. I saw it for myself. And, and one of the things I always felt was if I think something's cool, I'll bet my students will think it's cool too. Sure. Now the older I get, it's not all. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> but back See, in those I'm days, I'm still the same age. But these kids are getting yeah, younger and younger. They, they younger. sure are. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so that's um, that's something I've been doing for many, many, many years, and and it it seems to really to really work. You know? That's killer. Yeah.
All right, one last quick musical break before we wrap up our interview. This is the outro solo to Dementia, also from Believer's Dimensions album. session that I've given at ASTA several times called 10 Practical Strategies, and it's 10 practical strategies for using an electric violin in the classroom. And uh, that's an NS design session. I've done it there and other places. I did it at TMEA two or three years ago. But it's really all about how, how do we use this as a practical tool. And the five string and the octave pedal really are, they, they really open up all kinds of possibilities. Yeah. And, and you're right, it's not just as a performance tool, it's as a teaching and demonstration tool. People sort of forget about that because they get kind of, kind of scared about technology. Right. And I think, I think role, the role of you and me and others like us is to be able to say, no, and, and you don't have to be, back even in the Zeta Clinic days, people would think they had to be doing MIDI, they had to be right. doing effects processing. And, you know, you really don't have to. No. You, it, it, there are ways to use this instrument uh, that, are, that are effective. You know, I was just um, giving a clinic in Cobb County uh, down in Atlanta a couple weeks ago. And I can't remember how this came up, but we got to talking about electric violins with frets. And I actually learned something from you in one of your podcasts recently. Okay. Because <clears throat> I don't own a fretted violin, but I need to get my hands on one. Because I've played for a number of years in a band here in Durham that volume has been an issue. Sure. And, um, and um, uh, you know, we used to laugh about fretted violins, you know, back in the day. And, um, but I know that uh, Ned has been really passionate about mm -hmm. it. And I know Mark is passionate about it. Um, and other manufacturers. And I didn't understand it. But you sort of reminded me, and it makes all the sense in the world, that it's, it's not about being a crutch. It's about being able to play in a high-volume scenario where I can't maybe hear as well as I can when I'm here in my own studio or in headphones and doing what I do. It was a really good reminder for me, uh, and I was able to bring that to the teachers of Cobb County, and the session was not even really about technology and electric violins. It was almost like a sidebar, and, and I brought up fretted violins um, and we got to talking a little bit and I said, well, who knows, you know, why? And I learned it directly from you on one of your podcasts. So trust me that all that information just means a lot to a lot of us. Cause there's little, there's little things that I hadn't thought about before that, that I'll think about. And it, and it just reminds me of one of my mentors when I was about 24 years old, we were just talking and I was asking how you develop, you know, kind of a reputation in the world of education and she said, Scott, you got to write. And in those days, of course, there weren't podcasts. There wasn't the internet. But I started writing. I started working to get published. I wrote my ideas down. And, um, and now, of course, I have my blog. I've got stuff all over YouTube. And, and what I've learned is, yeah, when you are willing to share your ideas freely, somebody needs them. Even a veteran like me got really important information from you in one of those podcasts 
uh, and you're a veteran too, you know, and some young teacher of 22 or 23, I'm sure saw that as well. I'm like, I need one of those for, for my performance or for my kids performance. And so I just really appreciate that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, and the thing is, if I had known, I, I just started doing some teaching here just a couple of years ago because I was always like, man, I got time for that. I, I, I need to be practicing. I need to be playing. I need touring and all that stuff. And, uh, and I ended up in a situation where I needed a little more income. And I thought, well, I'll take some students because I guess it's easy money and something I can do during the day. A lot of my, all my students are Skype students. Right. And, uh, and I went, goodness, if I'd have known that teaching could make you a better player, oh, yeah. I'd have started doing this years ago. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, <clears throat> I've been doing a lot of reflecting um, this summer particularly because um, I had been asked uh, a, a little while ago to create a conference session for teachers on career fulfillment, how to have a full career that you're, that you're really finding fulfillment every day. And, um, and so I started looking at models and I started looking at all, a lot of people's opinions about what does it take to, to be fulfilled. And, um, and I wrote a series of blog posts on my blog, thoughts of a string educator that deal with various aspects of this. Um, Interestingly, if you go back and you look at the psychologist Maslow, who has the hierarchy of uh, uh, hierarchy of human um, human needs, human needs, the hierarchy of human needs, like the bottom of the hierarchy is like the basics, you know, food, water, sleep um, and uh, warmth. And then you go on up the the, um, the pyramid and you get to stuff like safety and then the next level is like love and human belonging. And the next level getting up towards the top of the pyramid is um, creativity. And, um, and you get to the very top, which is like basically, it's not enlightenment, but it's like um, uh, I can't, uh, fulfillment. It's just yeah. fulfillment. It, it really goes to this notion of being, um, being creative and, 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 and um, expressive in all that you do. For us teachers, I think a lot of teachers can get so mired in the the details of the daily work that they forget to be an artist, yeah. that they forget to be a creator. And I think one of my very fortunate, um, one of the fortunate aspects of my life is that I've, for for whatever reason, always been able to be a creator, whether it was learning how to improvise or diving into the technology or writing my own music or writing for believer or, um, uh, or, 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 or studying a score to, to, to be able to articulate what that score is at a variety of levels, both very high level music to student level music. Um, I've managed to keep that artistry in my life as a teacher. That's the trick to fulfillment. And then if you flip that over to the artist, to the full-time artist, the fact is that teaching so often for me flips the artistic switch and I'll go, Oh, that's what it is I need to do. And if there's something that I really dig as an artist, then I take that over into my teaching life, whether it was the recording curriculum or electric violins, or uh, I could probably think of 15 more things that I've incorporated into, uh, into my life as a teacher, including this stuff, talking about Maslow, who dreamt right. when I got my degree in music education, I'd be speaking. I spoke down in Charlotte to their, uh, to the Charlotte Mecklenburg string teachers just on Monday. And 
we were talking about Maslow down there. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and somebody might look at it and go, well, what's that have to do with string teaching? Well, it has everything to do with being an artist teacher, you know, and that's really uh, kind of what, what it's been all about for me, to be honest. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because, you know, I've got a lot of friends that are orchestra directors or band directors. I played in a marching man in college, so a lot of my college buddies are all, you know, directors. And I stay in touch with them, and, like, none of them are doing performance and recording all that, especially to the level you are. So talk about, because being a, a band director and orchestra director, that's, it's pretty, this, this ain't no 40 hour week gig. It's, no. it's a time consuming thing. Yeah. How are you able to, to really keep that going at the high level that you are? Also ASTA, also three boys and a wife at home and, you know, staying active in your community and, and then being an artist, a nationally recognized artist on top of that. For me, it's about, um, being purposeful and being present. So we had a conversation earlier about our families a little bit and, and, um, people that know me well know that this summer was a family summer. I, uh, I decided not to conduct an interlock in this summer after many years. And I stayed home to be uh, part of my son's, uh, sports lives and their daily lives at our home. But the fact is that, um, I, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, I don't rest well, so rest for me is being creative and, and I, it's just part of my DNA that for me, um, putting my feet up and doing nothing for a day is actually harder than, than doing something that's at least moderately productive. So whether I'm on my mountain bike trying to get some exercise and appreciating and enjoying the woods and nature, or if I'm down here in my studio practicing or, um, one of the things I've, I've made a point to, to play at church like my whole life. So, um, and I'm in town probably half the weekends of any given month. So if I'm in town, my instrument is out of the case on Sunday morning and I just make it sort of a priority. And fortunately at the church I go to, I can improvise and they throw a chart in front of me and I can be a creative musician in that aspect. So I guess the, the point is that, that I enjoy I enjoy productivity and in some ways productivity for me is restful because um, I feel like I'm, I'm doing what I've been put here to do. Sure. Um, and I've just tried to be purposeful. Like uh, if I'm, if I, if I need to get away for a, a day or two or three, I get away, but then I come back. I try to utilize that. And, and the other part of it for me is really relationships. You know, um, I'm so fortunate that the people that are part of my inner circle are creative people too, that I love working with and I enjoy working with, or my wife really gets it. You know, I, I think, um, cause I am busy and, and, uh, over the years, uh, her friends have said to her, you know, uh, geez, Scott's doing an awful lot. Are you okay? You know? <laughs> and, uh, her response from the time we were in our twenties was always look, uh, this is what I signed up for with this guy. Uh, I knew before we ever got married that this was his path and this is kind of how he operates. And, but the real trick is to be present and to be, um, mindful and, and when it's time to be present with an individual, be present with that individual. And I try to be very mindful about that in everything I do. It's not easy though. Cause that I, I do think you, you can go too far on the busyness side yeah. and get overwhelmed. Uh, a lot of people won't know this, but um, uh, a little over two years ago, I was diagnosed with leukemia. 
and uh, it was a shock to me, obviously, and a shock to my family. And we didn't advertise it. In fact, this is probably the first time that that has been mentioned in anything beyond my local circle of friends. Uh, we kept it off social media and we kept it out of the world. And I'll preface all of this by saying I'm 100% healthy today. It's in remission and I'm fine. And and uh, But when I uh, went through chemotherapy in the fall of 2016, yeah, it was fall 2016, I had to stop work for about eight weeks. Well, I went through that and it was the hardest eight weeks of my life, to sure. be honest. Not because of the chemotherapy, but because I had to sit down and rest. You couldn't work. I couldn't work. And I kind of felt like if I had any reminder in that eight weeks, the reminder was that I don't need to apologize for being passionate about the work that I do. Um, that, that, that my wife and kids celebrate that passion. My, my parents, my close friends understand that that's what... That's what makes me feel alive. And so during that eight weeks, which was difficult, it was a great time to sort of reset and gain a new appreciation for uh, sort of my mission as an educator, as a parent, as a teacher, as a colleague, um, as a friend. And, uh, and since that time, feeling good again and being able to sort of dig into the things that I love and being aware that, you know, you know, I'm 53 years old. My, my full-time career as an educator in the schools is, there's a, there's a finite time to that. And when I'm able to retire and continue my work sort of on my terms right. <laughs> in a different way, uh, I'll do it, you know? And, um, so I want to savor these last, sure. I don't know, seven, eight, ten years of what I'm doing so that, um, so that I really feel like, okay, I've, I've done what I need to do in, in that space. And then when I move on to the next space, whatever that's going to look like, I can do that with 100% gusto as well. So that's my goal anyway. Awesome. Yeah. Hey, man, it's been a lot of fun chatting with you. Um, Thank you. Tell people where they can find you and your music and what's the social media information and all that. Yeah, totally. So um, a couple of things. On Twitter, um, Orchestra Guy. And we'd love to have you hit me on Twitter. My blog is called Thoughts of a String Educator. And um, I post pretty frequently on that about everything from music education to um, uh, performing to repertoire to all kinds of things and other ideas too, just deep thoughts. So I'd encourage people to check me out there. And then I would encourage you to keep an eye on the new music from Believer. Um, you can find that on believerband.com. And uh, uh, there's some music up there right now that's new, and I, th I find it to be really exciting stuff, and I hope you do too. It's very progressive, and um, a lot of fun music coming out there, and more to come in the next um, couple of months. And um, you can also just check out my website at scottlaird.net, and um, my uh, local performance schedule and regional and national schedule is usually up there as well. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, hey, thanks so much for chatting with me. Matt, thanks a lot. Uh, this has yeah. been a lot of fun. I really appreciate you asking me, and, uh, and uh, this has been a great time. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks. Hey, thanks for listening to our chat with Scott Laird. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Man, we still have some really awesome interviews in the can that we'll be releasing as the year wraps up. I cannot wait for you to hear them. So listen to a bit of the third movement of the Trilogy of Knowledge, 
and we'll see you next time with another rock star violinist. Mm-hmm.